Well, today I want to ask the question, what is freedom? What is freedom? We live in a country that celebrates our national freedoms. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from tyranny, freedom from brutal oppression by a dictatorial regime, freedom from unreasonable searches of our properties, freedom to vote, freedom to expect a fair trial. We have lots of freedoms in our country. The Bill of Rights is one of the most remarkable political documents in world history. Constitutional amendments have increased our freedoms through two and a half centuries of our nation's existence. And I, for one, am very grateful to live in America, where I have a right to vote and own property. I have an opportunity to pursue the American dream. Every year I attempt to read several books on American history to better understand this great country in which I live. The American political system, as well as many of our founding fathers, Jefferson in particular, was deeply influenced by the British political philosopher John Locke. What many people do not know is that Locke was actually a Christian. And Locke wrote two apologetic works defending Christianity. And Locke's version of the social contract, which differed markedly from earlier versions, particularly that of Thomas Hobbes, we, the people, are sovereign. We, the people, have the right to establish human government and to topple the same government when it ceases to serve the interests of the people. We, the people, says Locke, have certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and property. No one can arbitrarily take away my life, says Locke. No one can transgress my freedoms and make me a slave. I have the right to own property, whether a home or a business. And all of this, it seems to me, is quite compatible with a Christian view of the world. Thomas Hobbes, who was born in 1588, the year of the Spanish Armada, lived in an England that was constantly fearful of a Spanish invasion. And so in his version of the social contract, people relinquish their autonomy to a centralized and powerful monarchy in exchange for his protection. But Locke understood that relinquishing our collective power could easily produce a dictatorial regime, a brutal regime. He viewed the Hobbesian social contract as a recipe for tyranny, which it was. So thankfully, it was the Lockean version of a social contract that took deep root in America. And the influence of Locke on Jefferson's Declaration of Independence is, in fact, unmistakable. Now, of course, it's true that American freedom has not been granted to everyone in equal measures. America has a terrible history of, Ameri of African slavery, of Native American genocide, of racial segregation, that is true. And for many, the reality of American freedom has been very late in coming. For most African Americans, the freedoms achieved in 1776 would not be equally applied to them for another couple centuries. For my African American sister-in-law... Martin Luther King is understandably a much greater hero than Thomas Jefferson. 
who enslaved her ancestors. That makes perfect sense to me. Now, my point today is actually not to get into American history, all right? That's actually not my point at all. I'd be quickly out of my depth, but I do want us to think about our freedoms. Do we enjoy our freedoms? Freedom is really crucial to the proper interpretation of our our passage. Let's turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. What exactly is freedom? I think when I use that word, everything I just talked about probably comes to mind. Well, frankly, because the issue of personal freedom has actually become very volatile in recent years, and because if you're following the debate, you know that the whole debate over Christian nationalism is really heating up, has been the last couple months because of a couple major publications. I do want to spend just a little bit of extra time this morning just framing a context to really help us interpret our passage correctly. I don't have to tell you that COVID-19 mandates and vaccine requirements proved explosive in our country. Social media and talk radio lit up with expressions of personal freedoms. The fact the whole country is actually talking about such things, though, is in itself an expression of freedom. Many parts of the world don't enjoy anything like the freedoms that we have. They even talk about such things. As I was working on the sermon, I was actually sitting at an orthodontist office waiting for a child. And I heard the radio speakers in the lobby belting out a loud patriotic song about Independence Day. As I was driving home from the orthodontist, I saw a truck in the next lane covered with red, white, and blue bumper stickers. One read, when they come for your guns, give them the bullets first. Well, that's the country we live in. And again, I'm grateful to live in America, even though I don't drive a 4x4 covered with patriotic bumper stickers or plan to shoot anybody anytime soon, all right? But the American political system has, in my estimation, proven to be one of the greatest political systems in world history. And I'm grateful that it's actually improved, in my estimation at least, over the centuries. I'm thankful that the diabolical institution of slavery has been dismantled in our country. I'm grateful that our country is beginning to recognize the evils of Native American genocide and making some minor improvements at least to right some of the wrongs of the past. I'm grateful the Bill of Rights has been expanded considerably. I'm grateful we have more freedoms now than we did in 1776. I'm actually grateful the church, the church has greater religious freedom today than it did in colonial America. Did you know this? The church actually has more freedom today than it did in colonial America. Many Christians do not realize how prohibitive Many colonial laws were toward the free exercise of religion. You could get hung, right? You could get hung if you went to the wrong colony and tried to preach. At no time in church history, in my estimation, has the church enjoyed as much freedom as we do in America today. Throughout the whole history of Christianity, I think we have more freedom today than at any other time that any other Christians have enjoyed. 
So, given all that background, let me ask you a question. Are we free? Is America a free people today? Do we actually even understand what that term means, biblically speaking? Let's be really specific. Have evangelical Christians so conflated political freedom with spiritual freedom that we're ill-equipped to draw a line between them? Is there a difference? Have we confused what the Bible calls freedom with what a political conservative calls freedom? From time to time, I listen to Christian talk radio on the way to work, and I'm often alarmed by confusion at this point to hear some Christian talk radio hosts speak. You'd almost assume that Christian freedom means the stock market is doing really well, and gas prices are really low now, and military spending is up, and China's economy is cooling off, and my 401k keeps growing. That's all freedom, right? And that's on Christian talk radio. For many, Christian freedom means we accept only a glorious view of our country's past and never face up to the reality of our national sins. Christian freedom means if you come for my guns, I'll give you the bullets first. You hear that on talk radio. Some Christians seem to think that the way to protect and preserve Christian freedom is to build more aircraft carriers and to keep our nuclear arsenal intact. And I'm not against the military. Not at all. I'm thankful for those who serve. But for some, make America great again is synonymous with make America Christian again. And Donald Trump is the foremost Christian crusader in the land. Now again, I'm not trying to go into politics, actually. (laughs) I'm actually not. But I, I do have a pastoral obligation to really just keep up with the currents of surrounding worldviews in our culture that can actually influence the church. And understand that I do, in fact, believe, as I have told you on previous occasions, that Christianity can and should encourage love for one's country. I really do truly believe this. Paul is unequivocal in his love for the Jews and his Jewish heritage. You don't believe that? Read Romans 9. Talk about a guy who loved his people, his country, his language, his heritage. Paul loved his Jewish countrymen. He observed their feast. He kept up their customs even though he wasn't under the law. Why did he do this? Paul never forsook his Jewish culture even when he went off and evangelized the Gentiles. Paul loved Israel. When Alexander Solzhenitsyn was exiled from the Soviet Union to the United States, many evangelicals profoundly misunderstood him. They could not understand why he still loved his country. Of course he loved his country. It all makes perfect sense. Read Romans 9. If Jesus loves every tribe and tongue and nation, doesn't that include my own tribe, my own tongue, my own nation? To fail to love one's country is to betray the Great Commission. Love your tribe and tongue and nation. But back to my point. My point is very simple. We need to carefully distinguish between gospel freedom and American political freedom. Make sure we don't conflate the two as one and the same. 
Let's be really clear. A North Korean Christian living under a brutal totalitarian regime has greater gospel freedom than an unbelieving, gun-toting American driving a 4x4 and flying an American flag in the parking lot of a political rally. Right? An Iranian Christian living under a totalitarian Islamic regime has greater gospel freedom than an unbelieving American businessman with several multi-million dollar companies, three houses, and a yacht. A Ukrainian Christian, right now, hiding from the Russian military onslaught, has greater gospel freedom than an unbelieving American influencer who posts obnoxious videos of herself on social media all day long. That's not real freedom. So why am I saying all this? I'm saying this because we really have to understand, according to John 8, what true freedom is. In John 8, Jesus is engaged in a heated controversy with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. This is a really heated controversy. And ironically, their situation, the Jews, is the opposite of ours. The Jews were living in a state of political subjugation to the Roman Empire. They lacked most of our basic freedoms. The Jews, in fact, had spent much of their history annexed to various political powers. Through their history, Abraham's physical descendants had been subjugated by Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, Rome, and at times other lesser states. So here's a question. If the Jews' political situation was the opposite of ours, which it was, then what would true freedom look like? Right? If theirs is the opposite of ours, their situation, what would true freedom look like? Would it look like us? So how does Jesus define true freedom in a country that was looking for a Messiah, a liberator to come, and to grant them freedom? And if Jesus is going to be your Lord and your King... You're going to follow him as a nation. What does that even look like? What kind of freedom will the Messiah bring? That's the question that's rumbling all around Israel. And that's the question we need to ask of our passage. Would Jesus Christ, the Messiah, say to people who lack our political freedoms that true freedom is to gain American freedoms? If you look like America, then you've got it, right? Get what the Americans have, and then you're free. Now, I realize this has been a long-winded introduction to our passage. I don't normally spend that much time on the history. You say, sometimes you do. Okay, I do. I get it. Okay. But I do want to point out one more curiosity before we launch into it. The Jews, as, you see, as you'll see in the passage, despite being politically oppressed, actually viewed themselves as free. Their political situation was the opposite of ours, and yet they thought they were free. 
And Jesus comes along to point out that they're not so free as they think, but not because they lack our freedoms. It's really crucial that we understand Jesus' meaning. If Jesus were speaking to Americans living with enormous political freedoms, the same freedoms we have today, freedoms that we have that many people around the world don't have, actually he would have to preach precisely the same message that he preached to the Jews. This is what makes this passage so relevant to us. You know, situation is, is, is opposite the Jews, but the passage is equally relevant to us. All right, so what is Jesus then talking about? Let's engage our text, beginning with verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 32, of course, contains some of Jesus' most famous words, but also some of his most misunderstood words. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, that sounds like an eminently quotable line in a patriotic film. But what does it mean? We'll keep reading. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak what, have I, what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. That really truly is a remarkable passage. These Jews are politically subjugated people. They had experienced multiple periods of enslavement, yet they claim to be free when they're not. Again, our political circumstance is the opposite of the Jews. But our problem is identical. We are not politically subjugated, by and large. So we can claim to be free, but Jesus would say to us, no, you're not. Jesus speaks in verse 34 about the worst kind of slavery in the world. Slavery to sin. And Jesus will ultimately conclude that these people, in the words of verse 44, look at the text, are children of the devil. You are of your father, the devil. Imagine Jesus speaking that way to a freedom-loving, patriotic American at a political rally. 
You are not free at all. You are a slave to the devil. You'd have a fight on your hands, no doubt. So keep in mind where this whole conversation is going. It's going to end very badly. Look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Now, friends, let's make sure that we really understand what Jesus is talking about here and don't misunderstand what true freedom looks like. We've got to be very careful in approaching these verses to understand to whom Jesus is speaking. Obviously, Jesus is speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. And we've been exploring this conversation for a number of weeks now. And again, this has not been a friendly conversation. And Jewish leaders have already attempted to arrest Jesus unsuccessfully. Further, back in verse 21, Jesus said, I am going away and you will seek me. And then he said this, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So again, this is not a friendly dialogue. Nevertheless, Jesus did say in verse 28, we saw this last week, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that sounds a little reassuring. Some, indeed, will embrace Christ. And verse 30 also seems reassuring. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. So clearly there is a rift that is opening among the Jews in Jerusalem. While some are seeking to arrest and to destroy him, others, it seems, are beginning to believe. And Jesus suggests that you're going to get this figured out. But at this point, we have to ask the question, just how sincere is their belief? Unlike us, Jesus can look right into the heart of an individual And Jesus does not confuse spontaneous initial belief with enduring faith. Jesus told us in Matthew that some seed just falls falls into shallow, rocky soil. It springs up with life, but quickly it withers away. Other seed is just choked out by the weeds. Well, I think it's really important to keep that parable in mind, the parable of the sower, when interpreting our text especially verse 31. The Jews who believed in verse 31 contextually are the Jews of verse 30. The many who believed in him. So verse 30, many believed in him, but what kind of belief were they exercising? That really is a crucial question to the proper interpretation of the passage. And notice how verse 31 is not so reassuring as verse 30. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed on him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Yes, these Jews believe on one level, verse 30, but Jesus hastens to clarify what a true disciple does. He abides. Doesn't verse 31 imply that some might not be truly his disciples? They're not truly going to abide in his word? In other words, what verses 30 and 31 are pointing to is the matter of fickle faith. We've actually seen this before in John's Gospel. 
Back in John chapter 2, we were told that Jesus came to Jerusalem for a Passover feast. And there we were told many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Well, that sounds great. Many are believing in him. But John quickly added, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Oh, I see. We saw the same thing in John chapter 6, after Jesus multiplied the loaves and fed the 5,000. The following day, the same crowds came across the lake to seek him out. And Jesus says, you are only seeking me because I filled your bellies. And when Jesus refused to perform another sign, many of his disciples, that was John's term, many of his disciples turned and walked away. There was a kind of initial discipleship that doesn't follow through. So again, we have seen this idea of fickle faith right through John's gospel, and I believe that that's what we're seeing right here. And the fact that verses 30 through 31 are dealing with fickle faith is actually further confirmed by just reading right down through the end of the chapter, all the way down to verse 59, where some of these Jews want to stone him all of a sudden. So in many cases, it seems that we're not dealing with genuine faith at all. We're dealing with a kind of seed that falls out among the rocky ground. And I think, frankly, that's precisely the situation that we are confronted with in America today in many, many places. When Christians lose all hope, when Donald Trump exits the White House, I mean, seriously, when they just kind of lose all hope, friends, that is is a shallow, rootless faith. We are dealing with people who are still living in bondage to their sin and cannot trust their future to Christ alone. Jesus would say to such people in the words of verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's what matters. Friends, this is truly a remarkable statement, and keep it in context. Jesus says to the Jews who believe on him, that's who he's talking to, to the Jews who believe on him, you need to embrace the truth. You still need to be liberated. You are not as free as you think. Just because a person claims to be free doesn't mean he's free at all. So clearly, whatever truth Jesus is talking about, the Jews who have yet to fully embrace him don't understand it. Jesus' words were actually highly provocative. They elicited an angry, defensive response from the Jews. Look at verse 33. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They are not happy with them. What the Jews ask? You're calling us slaves? The Jews interpreted Jesus' statement as an indication that they were, in fact, slaves. If Jesus offers freedom, the implication is indeed, well, you need it because you're a slave. You need freedom. But this they emphatically deny. We have never been enslaved to anyone. Now, certainly the Jews understood their history. They knew the Jews had often been enslaved. They knew that since the Babylonian invasion, with just a couple brief interludes, that Jerusalem had never actually been free up to the present hour. In fact, Jerusalem had been politically subjugated, get this, for two and a half times longer than America has been a nation. 
That's how long Jerusalem had been under political subjugation in Jesus' day. Two and a half times longer than we have been a nation. And so every year at Passover, the Jews gathered in Jerusalem to rehearse the Exodus story. The Exodus story was all about God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. And they celebrated it year after year after year. And the country knew that their people had fallen under the trampling hill of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and now the Romans. Nevertheless, despite all this, they claim to be a free people. Well, on what basis are you a free people? Answer, we are children of Abraham. We are Abraham's children. In other words, even though they lacked our political freedoms, the Jews insisted on their ethnic freedom. No one could deny them their ethnicity in Abraham. They were Abraham's true children and therefore free. Because they're Abraham's children, the Abrahamic covenant and all of its promises applied to them. They were the blessed offspring of Abraham. And that assumption provokes their angry retort at the end of verse 33. How can Jesus say, you will become free? We are children of Abraham. Now, as I pointed out, this exchange really becomes very heated. Can you imagine walking into a group of capital writers on January 6, 2021? carrying the American flag and the Christian flag and storming the Capitol. And imagine you said to them, hey, you guys are enslaved. You guys are all enslaved. You're not free at all. That's that's the situation Jesus finds himself in here. You guys aren't so free as you think. So what exactly is Jesus talking about? Well, in verse 34, it becomes very clear. When Jesus says, truly, truly, what follows is a bold, assertive, dogmatic statement. Verse 34 reads, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus is saying, you are not free at all. You are slaves. And for Jesus, the ultimate slavery has nothing to do with your political situation. And it certainly has nothing to do with your ethnic heritage. The Jews said, we're children of Abraham. Sorry, it's got nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with your relationship to sin. Now, look very closely at how the verse ends. When Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He means that the practice of sin actively enslaves. That's what that means. The practice of sin. If you're out there practicing sin, then you are enslaving yourself. If you are practicing sin, you are enslaving yourself. The Jews claim we're not slaves at all. And Jesus says quite the opposite. You are actively, right now, enslaving yourself. Even while you claim to be free, even while you celebrate your ethnic heritage, you are loading yourselves down with the chains of bondage to sin. Friends, can we apply that to our American context? Again, our political situation is rather the opposite of the Jews in the first century. We have not been subjugated by Rome. But actually, we do not live 
in a free country if we are thinking of Jesus' definition of freedom. Like the Jews, finding their identity in Abraham, so we too like to find our identity in our founding fathers. And I, I understand that on one level. But I'm certain that Jesus could show up in our country today and say, you know what, this whole nation is a nation of slaves. The sins of our country are enormous. The internet, I don't have to tell you this, is a cesspool of iniquity. It's rotten. You know that. I know that. Our inner cities are rife with corruption. Immorality on college campuses has become so commonplace that virginity is synonymous with backwardness and prudishness. Are you Amish? wrong with you the entertainment industry is driven by licentiousness you know that i know that truth has fallen on hard times i mean just look around the world look at our country america is emphatically not a free country in fact no country of the world is a free country by jesus's definition and friends this was the message that jonathan edwards preached to the british colonists who came over to these shores and claim to be a city on a hill. Oh, we're going to be a bright city on the hill. We're going to shine a gospel light all across the world. We're going to establish this Christian commonwealth, and everybody's going to notice. And Edwards has to say to them, repent. Repent. And embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a reason he needed to see an awakening, because everybody was spiritually dead. Think of that. Colonial New England was spiritually dead. That's why you had to have an awakening. And in fact, we needed a second great awakening in our country following the American Revolution. Why? Why do you need an awakening? Because everybody's dead. People sometimes interpret our great awakenings in this country as an indication that we were founded as a Christian nation. Actually, if you're looking at Christ's definition of freedom, precisely the opposite is true. You need an awakening because you're enslaved to sin. You're not free. You need to repent and experience spiritual regeneration. That's what Edwards preached. That's what the preacher of the Second Great Awakening preached. And we certainly need spiritual awakening in our country and, in fact, all across our world today. I suspect that Jonathan Edwards would have never dreamed of how thoroughly we have managed to corrupt ourselves. In his day, he had to deal with a couple of young men who had gotten into pornography. They had gone to a neighboring village, and they had broken into an office, and they had smuggled out a nursing manual with some drawings in it. That's how inaccessible pornography was in his day. Now think about how accessible it is in our day. So we certainly need spiritual awakening. Now Jesus proceeds in verse 35 and 36 to distinguish between a slave and a true son. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's where the liberation comes from the son. Essentially, Jesus is calling the Jews slaves. You think you're true children of Abraham? You're not. You're slaves. They have no guarantee at all that they are going to remain in the house of Abraham forever. 
Just because you're born with Abraham's blood, you're not free. Do not think that you're a true son. In Matthew 8, Jesus says to the Jews that think they're free, that the sons will be thrown into the outer darkness. Well, many will come from the east and from the west and will be gathered together in the kingdom. Here are the Jews who pride themselves in Abraham's bio, as Abraham's biological descendants. That Basically, your biological descent is meaningless. Rather, the true criterion is to find freedom in the Son. That's true freedom. Freedom is found in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. Now, in verse 35, if you're, if you're looking at the ESV, the translators do not capitalize the term son. And that's a judgment call on their part. They do capitalize son in verse 36. All right, so lowercase in verse 35, uppercase in verse 36. In this case, the translators are assuming that verse 35 refers to the believer, and verse 36 refers to Christ, a true son, a true child of God, lowercase son, finds freedom in Jesus, the son of God, uppercase. And that may be, and that's certainly scriptural. It is also possible that both references to son should be capitalized. John seems to reserve the word son exclusively for Jesus, and he uses the term children, plural, to refer to believers elsewhere in his gospel. And if if that's the case, then you should capitalize son in verse 35. John is then saying in verse 35, Jesus Christ remains forever. Jesus Christ, the son, remains forever. He's God's true son, unlike you Jews who are really slaves. Therefore, if he's the true son, then in verse 36, look for your freedom in the true son. That's liberation. Really, either way, John is still clearly pointing to Jesus Christ as the source of our true freedom. True, everlasting freedom comes through Jesus Christ. And his gospel, not Thomas Jefferson and his Declaration of Independence. As much as I love the Declaration of Independence, that's not where true freedom comes from. It comes from Christ and his gospel. Now, rapidly, in verses 37 through 41, Jesus goes on to point out the error in Jewish thinking concerning their sonship. And that error consists of them not knowing their true father. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Like, you don't have to tell me that. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Well, who's that? They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God? This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Well, who's that? They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, pointing to Jesus, of course. We have one father, even God. Oh, really? Well, go ahead and read verse 44. We'll get there next week. You are of your father, the devil. So, did you follow all that? 
essentially, if the Jews are not true children of Abraham, then we have to conclude that God, the Father, is not their true Father. That's what Jesus is saying. And if God is not their Father, there is only one other option. The devil. That's it. So let's say it again. If the Jews are not Abraham's true children, then God the Father is not their true father. And if that's the case, who is their father? The devil. Now, ethnically, the Jews were Abraham's offspring. Jesus understood that. He acknowledges that in verse 37. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. They have Abraham's blood. Nevertheless, Jesus says, you are trying to kill me. You are trying to murder the very person who brings the Father's words to them. Well, if God the Father is the Father of Abraham and Jesus speaks the words of the Father, aren't they trying to murder the wrong guy? Abraham never tried to murder the man who spoke the words of God. Abraham never did that. So if Abraham is your father, why is there no family resemblance? That's what he's saying. Why don't you act the way Abraham did? Well, clearly, Jesus is just moving the conversation beyond the discussion of ethnic paternity to moral paternity. Think of that. Do your actions, not your ethnicity, do your actions reveal that you are a child of God the Father. That's what matters. Do your actions demonstrate that you are a child of God? So friends, can we just conclude where we began with the question of true biblical freedom? What exactly is that? And again, don't anyone misunderstand. You know I love my country. I love my country. But I know that true biblical freedom has nothing to do with where I was born. And it certainly has nothing to do with my ethnicity. It has nothing to do with the laws of our land, although I'm thankful for many of the laws in our land. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying here is there's only, there's only two families in the whole human race. That's it. There's two families in the whole human race. There is the family of God. Abraham was part of that family. And that's where true freedom is found. And there is the family of the devil. There's only two. Now, of course, just because we're in the family of God does not mean that we instantly stop sinning. I understand that. That's why we need a doctrine of sanctification. That's why Paul goes to great lengths in Romans to explain all that to us. Because sometimes you don't really feel like you're a child of God because you just sinned. But true freedom is to be liberated from the power of darkness, from the clutches of Satan, from the tyrannical reign of sin, and to live out our new identity as children of God. That is true freedom. And friends, that again is why I say that a North Korean Christian... A North Korean Christian living under a brutal totalitarian regime has greater freedom than an unbelieving, gun-toting American going around celebrating his political freedoms. Actually, the North Korean is freer, right? 
The Iranian Christian living under a totalitarian Islamic regime has greater freedom than an unbelieving American businessman with several multi-million dollar companies. He's freer, according to Christ's definition. In other words, friends, the line between freedom and tyranny does not run along the border of a country. The line is drawn at the foot of the cross. True freedom, everlasting human freedom, can only be found when you step across that line and you take your sins and you nail them to Christ's cross and you are crucified with Christ, Paul says, and you resurrect to new life with him. True freedom is on the far side of the tomb. And that's why Paul told the Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And he tells the Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So as we go to prayer, can we turn to Galatians chapter 5? Galatians 5. And here Paul is going to give some counsel to the Galatian believers who have experienced liberation through Christ. And he is going to say in chapter 5 and verse 1 that Christ has set us free. That's true. So if we are free, what does that mean? Well, would you just take a few moments in conclusion here and just meditate on verses 16 down through verse 26, where Paul is going to tell us how to walk now that we're free and what to lay aside and what to actively produce. Would you do that? This is how we'll close out our time together. Pray your way down from verse 16 down through verse 26. Our Father, we give you thanks for Christ who has come to teach us what true freedom is. Lord, we have some people here today in our assembly from different countries. Those countries do not have nearly the freedoms that we do here, but we acknowledge that in Christ we are all free. And Lord, there are some people here today, perhaps, who are American citizens, and they think they're free. But according to Christ's definition, they are not yet free. They are still in sin. We pray that today might be a day of liberation for them. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.